I can at least uh, put on the table the things that we need to be in consideration about in order to at least address the question of what happens to us when we pass away. What is the state of a loved one who has passed and what can we expect ourselves? Very difficult to answer. The only sure uh, response that we have to that question is Jesus himself when he rises from the dead. He is the first fruits uh, from the dead. And so Jesus' existence in his resurrected body is the only real picture of the resurrection that we have uh, apart from speculation. But we will talk about it. There's a number of passages, and I'd like to set straight a number of different um, assumptions people have. Maybe they've just become ways of speaking about the afterlife that are, a few of them are inaccurate to the scriptural teachings. So we'll deal with a little bit of that, and then I'll give you my best guess. Obviously, uh, Christian traditions are quite um, divergent on this point. There are certainly uh, Christian traditions who believe that when we die, we simply sleep and we wait to be resurrected from the dead. There are others that follow a more, what we might call in philosophy, Greek dualistic approach. The idea that we are actually an immaterial, eternal soul. That's what we are. And we just are traveling in the body for a while. And when we die, our soul uh, lives on and it's fully who we really are. And it goes to heaven with God and then awaits a bodily resurrection. There are certainly people who believe that. And then there are other positions in between. And my position might be a bit in between, but in the end, what we're seeking is what the scriptures teach about this. And the scriptures are not clear. This is in some ways a gray area, but we'll do our best to illuminate what they do say. And you can make your own mind up as to what you believe happens. So in order to do this, I am going to start with Philippians chapter 1. We're in verses 20, 21, 22, 23, that, that section here. And uh, this is what Paul says. He says in verse 21, For to me living is Christ, and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I don't know which I prefer. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I'm convinced of this, I know that I'll remain. And he goes on. I'm sure that there's another passage that you are a bit more familiar with when you think about this issue, and it's from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks a lot about what it means to be a people who are living uh, in the flesh. And he says this, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, when we've taken it off, we'll not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden, because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. Now we're going to get back to that passage because there's quite a lot there. 
But those are the two passages that when people talk to me about what happens to people when they die, they most often bring up either the Philippians passage or the Second Corinthians passage as a starting point to say that we are more or less souls that are traveling in the body. And so when we die, the soul leaves and it goes and receives its heavenly dwelling. It goes into the heavens. And we often talk about it as going to heaven or in the case of the wicked, going to hell. Now, in order to talk about this, but we have to talk about what the Bible tells us we are as humans. The idea that we are essentially an immaterial soul, that is who we really are. And the body is just kind of a, well, to use Paul's language, a tent in which we live. Um, and when the body dies, the soul is released. But the soul is who we really are. It's easy to read Paul that way if you already have that idea in mind. But that is not what the Bible says about what humans are. Many of us remember at the very beginning, the scriptures tell us in Genesis the story of the creation of humanity. And it says that God took, the Hebrew word is afar, we've talked about this before, it's like a pulverized dust, very insubstantial. If you threw it in the wind, it would blow away. God took afar, and he formed a human being out of it, and then he breathed into the human being the breath of life. And the human being became a nephesh. Nephesh is often translated today as living being. Um, but it was translated into Greek in the New Testament and in the, old, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint with the word pasuke. Pasuke is the Greek word for soul. We get the word psychology from it. We make the P silent, but it would have been pronounced um, in the original Greek. Psychology is, ology comes from logos, a word about the psych, about the soul, pasuke. So nephesh is the word that was translated soul. But in Hebrew, a nephesh is not an immaterial thing. It's a combination of the breath of God and afar, the dust of the earth that come together to form a nephesh, to form a soul. That's a little different way of thinking about it. Now, Paul was Jewish, and this most certainly would have been what underlied his comments when he speaks about being apart from the body and at home with the Lord. So we're going to think about that. But I want to insist that the narratives of Genesis lay uh, not only a historical foundation for the way we remember history, but often also a, a type of philosophical foundation for what we think about ourselves and the world and God and how these things interact. Now, they wouldn't have thought of it as philosophy, but philosophy in the Hebrew Bible is done through story. And so when we talk about things like anthropology, a study of humanity, or we talk about um, metaphysics, like what's the nature of reality, the Hebrew people told stories. And they told historical stories. But the story of the creation of humanity is essential to our understanding of what comprises a human being. And a human being is combined, is, is a combination of the afar, the dust of the earth, the raw material of the universe, and the breath of God. So when we die, it's the breath of God that returns to him. I'm encouraging us to think more biblically more Hebraically, that you and I have a spiritual part 
But that spiritual part is not all we are. We also have a physical part, and the two come together. And that's essential to why the Bible professes we need to be raised from the dead bodily. If we thought about it in a Greek way, that the soul is who we really are, why in the world would we need to be put in bodies again? Why not just exist as the angels do or something like that as spiritual beings? But that's simply not the nature of what humanity is. There is a body and there is a spirit and they come together to form who you and I are. And the same will be true in the resurrection from the dead. So we want to put that on the table first before we address the issue of what happens to us when we die. The second, the Old Testament believers believe that when a person died, they went to the grave or to the pit. The Hebrew word is sheol. This is where the dead went. And there are various things you could read in the Old Testament about the uh, speculation as to what, uh, what that was like, what, what existence in Sheol was like. As the Old Testament unfolds further and further, at first Sheol is thought to be a place where the dead go and they never get back from. There's people like David who write Psalms hoping that there's life after Sheol, but most of them despair that that's the case. Probably the most pronounced um, explication of that is in the book of Job. When Job wishes at one point in that text, I think it's round about chapters 15 or 16, but I didn't look that up in advance. But Job wishes that he could be hidden in Sheol um, until God's wrath on him was spent and then brought back. But then Job says what most in his day believed. But no one returns from Sheol. It's the place of the dead. As the scriptures um, develop, though, there is a belief in the book of Daniel, this reaches its full measure, that the dead will be raised from Sheol, and then they'll face judgment. And then after facing judgment, they will be sent to a place of their eternal destiny, whether it is what we would call heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, um, though they thought of it a little differently, I think, in the days of Daniel. Uh, or a place of punishment, which would be, well, we often say hell, but that is a bit of an inaccuracy in terms of the way the Bible talks about these things. So, so the first point is, what are we made of as humans? We talked about that. The second point is, where do the dead go? Well, the Bible teaches they go to Sheol. And you might ask the question, well, what is Sheol like? Well, that is hard to say. So the only thing we have in the Old Testament that might give us a little window into this is a story from 1 Samuel. This is 1 Samuel chapter 28. This is verse 8. King Saul has reached the very end of his life, and he, God is no longer speaking to him. He is being uh, persecuted by an evil spirit from the Lord, the text tells us. He's been rejected as king. David has been anointed. And uh, he is in a fairly desperate situation, and he wants uh, to consult, but God won't talk to him. So he decides he's going to go to a witch and call up the spirit, the, the breath of Samuel. And that, this is the story in 1 Samuel 28, verse 8. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes and went there, he and two men with him. They came to the woman by night, and he said, consult a spirit for me, and bring up for me the one whom I named to you. So he does use the word spirit. He doesn't say consult, consult a nefesh, consult a soul. He doesn't say that. He says consult a spirit, a breath, a wind for me. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the wizards from the land. Why then are you laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? 
But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He answered, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, have no fear. What do you see? The woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the ground. The Hebrew there is Elohim, one like a God coming up from the ground. So spiritual being is her point. It's a spirit. He said to her, what is his appearance? She said, an old man is coming up. He's wrapped in a robe. So Saul knew that it was Samuel. At least that's what Saul believed. And he bowed with his face to the ground and did obeisance. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams, so I've summoned you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you just as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you today. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. So that's one of the only stories, the only one I can think of, in which we have someone who has died interacting with someone who is still living. Few things are notable. First, uh, the witch of Endor here, as she used to be called in the older translations, was surprised by this and scared, which means that she did not frequently see this. So she must have been something of a con artist, uh, but it really happened in this case. And a few things happen uh, when Samuel talks with Saul that we should take note of. First, Samuel behaves like he's been woken from a sleep. And it's not surprising in the New Testament that when someone does die, Paul's favorite way of speaking of them is that they have fallen asleep. And Samuel behaves very much that way, like, why have you interrupted my sleep? Why have you bothered me? Why have you roused me? Now, it was a belief in the ancient world that the dead knew more than the living. And so it would, you would expect, um, at least Saul would expect, that Samuel would know a lot, being dead and all. He would maybe have had the answers. But Samuel seems to not know very much more than he knew when he died. He still knows that God has rejected Saul. He still knows that David has been anointed king. He still knows that God is going to hand Saul over to his enemies. So there's not a lot of new information here. There's a slight prophecy when he says that he and his sons are going to join Samuel in Sheol. That's another interesting thing to say, because Samuel is righteous. Saul is not. And yet Samuel is willing to say that he and Saul will end up in the same place, in Sheol. So there's no real distinction here between the righteous and the wicked, which is at least in terms of what happens to them when they die. And that's an issue that is revisited in the book of Ecclesiastes, when the writer of Ecclesiastes says that whether you're righteous or you're wicked, you end up going to the same place. He's talking about Sheol. So this is um, not a super clear story. I mean, clearly Samuel is maintaining some sense of his integrity, of his personal integrity while he's in Sheol. And he seems to be aware that he's died. The sense of his experience there seems to be mostly rest. He doesn't have much new information to give Saul, if, if any at all. 
And he expects that everyone who dies is going to end up where he is, is going to end up in Sheol. So there's not a good distinction between where the wicked go and where the righteous go, at least at this point. So that is the only real story where we get very much insight um, into what the experience of being dead must be like. So that gets us at least somewhere. Now, by the time of Jesus, a lot of speculation about Sheol and whether it was the same for the wicked and the righteous is done by the Jewish people, especially in the intertestamental period, the period between the Testaments. And so you get some speculation about that in some of the books written in that period. First Enoch, a little bit. Second Enoch, quite a lot. Now, the, the books of Enoch are not part of the Apocrypha. Um, they are part of a group of texts called Pseudepigrapha, uh, which means false writings, meaning that they're written under false names, under pseudonyms. So the books of First Enoch and Second Enoch are presented as having been written by Enoch, uh, but um, they most likely were not written by Enoch. They were written by somebody else who's using Enoch as their pseudonym of sorts and connecting what they're writing with the biblical Enoch from Genesis chapter 5. So second Enoch makes uh, quite a lot of speculation as to what Sheol is like about where the dead go. And by the time of Jesus, the assumption is that Sheol is divided into two areas. A peaceful, pleasant area described as paradise, described as a, a, almost like a Garden of Eden, where the righteous dead go. Then the other part of Sheol is Gehenna, or Hades, a place of fire, we translate it as hell, where the wicked go, and they're tormented. Now, in neither case, by the time of Jesus, is this the final resting place of people. This is still Sheol. It's still the waiting area. And by the time of the New Testament, that's become pretty abundantly clear because of Daniel. Now, we might have thought that Sheol would be the final resting place, but we get new information in the book of Daniel. This is Daniel chapter 12. At that time, God, God has sent an angel to speak to Daniel, and there's a bunch of visions in this book, but our, the relevant passage is here in 12 for at least our discussion. At that time, Michael, the great prince, the protector of your people, shall arise. There shall be a time of anguish, such as has never occurred since nations first came into existence. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. That's the book of life, presumably. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep the words secret and the book sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be running back and forth and evil shall increase. So I know there's a lot to deal with in that passage, and it'd be very interesting to talk about all of the prophecies and things. But what's most important is that by the time of Daniel's writing, it's becoming clear to the people that Sheol is not the final resting place, but that there would be a resurrection of the dead, a bodily resurrection, and people would face judgment. And after that, they would face their eternal destiny. So that is a picture of what death is. Death is temporary in the thinking of the people of Israel by the time of Jesus. There will be a resurrection. 
and judgment will follow afterwards. And the resting place is Sheol, which by Jesus' time is separated into two parts, as I said, paradise for the righteous and Gehenna or hell, Hades, for the wicked. And that's part of Sheol, the holding place. And it comes up in a parable of Jesus, this picture. And it's in Luke chapter 16. Some of you are familiar with this. Gospel of Luke chapter 16. This is beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they may not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is not describing the eternal destiny of people. This is Sheol. This is the place where the dead go to await their resurrection and judgment. And that has two parts. Paradise, where Abraham is, where the righteous would go to wait. It's pleasant. And Hades, hell, Gehenna, where the wicked go. And they're tormented because they are awaiting judgment. And they seem to know how that judgment's gonna go when they're there. So there's a certain consciousness assumed by the people of Israel and maybe confirmed by Jesus here. Certainly it is hinted at um, in the story of the witch of Endor and the raising of the spirit of Samuel, that there is a consciousness that the people are not lost, that in many ways they are still alive. So the idea of soul sleep is maybe a little difficult for me, that people are just asleep and oblivious, because you do have these stories where that does not seem to be the case. Now, of course, it's hard to say whether this parable Jesus is telling, whether he is confirming the first century Jewish beliefs about Sheol, or if he is simply speaking in a way that they will understand. And the point is not to validate their assumptions, but simply to tell them a story about what it means to be a truly righteous person. And that being wealthy doesn't guarantee that you actually are in God's favor. And being poor and on the street does not mean that you are actually out of God's favor, that they are making simplistic assumptions when they should be looking at other things to determine the righteousness of a person and their likelihood of being welcomed into paradise as opposed to Gehenna. But again, this is Sheol. It is the waiting area. So we often speak wrongly, at least biblically wrongly in the church when we speak colloquially about the afterlife. We'll often say that paradise is heaven and that hell is the place where the wicked go for their final judgment. But that would be inaccurate to the biblical discussion. 
Those are aspects of Sheol. What's coming at the end is that the, the righteous and the wicked will be resurrected. At least this is the story in the book of Revelation. They'll both be resurrected bodily and they will be judged. They'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he will judge the nations and everyone will answer for what they did in the flesh. The righteous will receive the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth, which is a physical creation, but Paul seems to insist in 1 Corinthians 15, it's physical, but made of spirit as opposed to made of dust, made of afar, made of uh, the material stuff of this universe. It's made of spirit, but it's still physical. It's still physical creation. That's the new heavens and the new earth. That's where we go after judgment. And then you might ask, well, where do the wicked go? If not hell, because hell is part of Sheol, then where, where are the wicked? Well, that is described in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, um, verse 5. We'll read this whole thing. And the one who was seated on the throne said, this is Jesus, see I am making all things new. And he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's the destiny of the finally condemned, is the lake of burning sulfur, the second death. Not hell, which is part of Sheol. So, not that it's pleasant, I mean, clearly not. But the torment that's being talked about in Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus is the torment of people who are waiting for judgment. That's why it's a place of torment. We don't actually get any words in the Bible about what the experience of people after the second death will be. There's no scripture other than the one I just read in, in Revelation 21 that talks about what the experience of the second death will be. The descriptions in the New Testament are about Sheol, about where people wait to be judged. At least that's, that's as best I can do in terms of reading it. So again, we ask the question, what is it like to die? Well, I want to bring together everything we've said, along with some things Jesus said when he was asked, particularly in John chapter 8, about Abraham. You remember, Jesus says, Abraham saw my day, and he rejoiced. And his interlocutors, the ones who were speaking with him, say to him, you are not yet 30 years old. You're saying you've seen Abraham? And he says to them, the scriptures say, I, I am the God of Abraham. God is the God of the living, not of the dead, which implies that Abraham is still alive, not that he's dead. And when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, many remember the story, Moses and Elijah come and minister with him, which seems to imply that they too are not dead. They're not lost. And of course, we already knew that in Samuel when Saul was able to call up the spirit of, of Samuel from Sheol, from the grave. So 
putting these pieces together is still speculation. But here is my best guess. And then you have to make your guess because these are guesses. But it seems to me, Paul calls death sleep almost all the time. You can see it throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for instance. He'll use that phrase, but he uses it quite, quite frequently in his writings, death as sleep. And I think that's because it's not full-orbed existence. There is no body. There's no ability to interact with the world. We're not yet in the new heavens and the new earth. So we haven't received all the promises. We haven't even yet been judged. So it's uh, an in-between kind of existence. But it seems to me the Bible's pretty clear that people still exist. And, and, and for the righteous, the assumption of the people of Israel, and Jesus doesn't seem to question this, is pleasant. It's a pleasant time of waiting. For the wicked, it is a torturous time of waiting. Now, the fire is most likely a metaphor for the kind of internal torment that goes through a person who now realizes that there's life after death and realizes what their judgment is going to be, but is waiting for it to happen. It's got to be pretty torturous. It's described as being burned in fire. And that's what hell is. It's a place where the wicked wait for their resurrection and judgment. So my, my sense is that there's a consciousness to being dead, and that the person is not lost, that they still exist. It's a different kind of existence than ours. It's certainly not sufficient. Otherwise, we wouldn't need bodily resurrection from the dead. But it is alive to the point that Abraham could be said to have seen Jesus. So I do expect that when believers die, we have a consciousness that lasts until our resurrection, in which we have an experience of Jesus and an experience of God and an experience that feels more like sleep but still has a consciousness to it. That's my best guess. But we're here, it's just the breath of God that was the par part of us when we walk the earth that is still living and being maintained by God. But it's not all of us. And it's certainly not, as we can see when Samuel comes up from, from the grave in 1 Samuel, it's certainly not a full-orbed experience. Samuel isn't gaining new experiences. He's not interacting in a fully lived out new reality. None of that seems to be happening for Samuel, and we wouldn't expect it to, because that is the destiny of the resurrection from the dead. When we are bodily resurrected, face judgment and go on to the new heavens and the new earth. So a couple of corrections we could make is we could stop saying hell is where the finally damned go because they go to the lake of burning sulfur, um, which is the second death, as Revelation says. Hell is a place where the wicked go waiting their judgment. It's part of that holding area. Maybe, some of this may be the origin of, of the Roman Catholic idea of purgatory, but this isn't exactly purgatory or anything. It's Sheol. So my sense is, and I've lost many loved ones myself, and I'm only guessing. We don't know what the actual experience is. But I expect that the part of them that was the breath of God breathed into them at their creation has returned to God and God is caring for them. And there's a consciousness to that, a place that Jesus had no problem calling paradise, a pleasant and comfortable place where Lazarus was waiting his resurrection. And he was with the saints of the past, right? In the parable, he was with Abraham. So I expect that it's going to be uh, an unusual thing, maybe feel more like dreams feel to us than like tangible reality does, but pleasant for the people of God. And then 
perhaps for the wicked, as they are aware that there is now life after death. They are aware that bodily resurrection is coming in judgment. They are aware that when they died, they were not in Christ. And so they know how that judgment will go. I imagine for them, it's not peaceful at all as they wait. That's my expectation. I don't know at all what the experience of the wicked will be after the final judgment, bodily resurrection from the dead, final judgment, and then being cast into the lake of burning sulfur called the second death. I have no idea. We're told that for Satan and his angels, they will be thrown into that lake and they'll be tormented day and night without ceasing, but they're spiritual beings. We don't know what the experience of humans will be. We're only told that those who are finally judged are thrown into the lake of burning sulfur and they experience what Revelation calls the second death. So that's the best I can do. But to get back to Corinthians, I think it's worth walking through now that we have all that background in front of us, what Paul is likely talking about here when he's trying to encourage the Corinthians to think beyond um, this temporary life. Because many scholars believe, and I guess I'm inclined to this, that the Corinthian church had a problem thinking too much of the kingdom of the heavens had already arrived. Um, what, what scholars call over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is understanding the end. Almost as though the Corinthians thought that all the blessings of the new covenant, all the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth should be available to them right now in their lives. And it seems pretty clear in both books that some people in Corinth might have believed that and that Paul is trying to correct some of that. Here in chapter five, and I'll walk it through it a little more slowly now that you have some of the background information so that we can see what Paul is most likely saying. So he's saying, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, and I, I do think he's talking about the physical human body, and he calls it a tent, um, but that's not to say that it's not part of who we are. Um, I think if you think about it as a Greek person, you think, oh yeah, yeah, because I'm really a soul. This thing is just a habitation. But remember, the scriptures say that when Christ became flesh, when the word became flesh, when Jesus became flesh, he tabernacled among us. He tented among us. Um, that is, and, and the history of the church has always said that he was in a real body, that this is, this is really who he was. It was true incarnation. He wasn't just walking around in the shadow or something like that. So I think Paul is borrowing some of that language. We shouldn't think of it as Greeks. We should remember who we are as Hebraic thinkers born out of the story of scripture. So for we know if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So he's talking there about the body that we're going to be resurrected with. I think that's what he's talking about there, that we, if we lose this one, there is another one for the breath of God in us to, to dwell within. If indeed we've taken it off, we'll not be found naked. So what he's, he's saying there is actually the opposite of what many seem to caricature Paul is saying or characterize Paul is saying. He is despising the idea that when the body is off, we'll just be a soul. No, no, no. We won't be found naked. We are going to be resurrected bodily. We have now a physical body. What he says in 1 Corinthians is we will have a spiritual body or literally a body made of spirit. And that's what he expects. And it's not already in us. It's not like the soul already is the spiritual body. It just has to be released. The soul, the breath of God, is what we should be saying. If the body dies, is, is left naked. And Paul is insisting it won't be left naked, even though many in his day thought that was ideal. You just want the soul free. But Paul is Jewish. No, we don't want a naked breath. That's not good. 
I mean, it's fine, but it's not life. It's not existence. We were waiting for that heavenly body or the, or the body made of spirit. For while we were still in this tent, we groan under our burden because we don't want to be unclothed, but to be further clothed. So Paul says again, you don't want to just be the breath of God. That's why we cling to this life the way we do. We know we need a body to exist as we should, so we cling to it. We don't want to be unclothed. We don't want to just be the breath of God floating away, but we want to be further closed. We want a better body than this one, is what he's saying, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. We want an immortal body. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee that we will be clothed with immortality. It's not something that's already in us that needs to be released. It's something that has to be given to us. And that's the new body and the resurrection from the dead. So we're always confident, even though we know that while we're at home in the body, this body, we're away from the Lord, meaning we're not with Jesus, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence that we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And, and Paul talks about that in Philippians as well, which is the passage we began with. He would rather, even if he was just a spirit, just, just the breath of God, he would rather be in the presence of Jesus than separated from him, which he is as long as he's part of this material world. But so whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul here, I think, has woven together all the things we've been talking about. I mean, everything is here. When we die, the spirit is released, but we don't want to be a naked spirit. That's not a full-orbed existence, but it does return to God. So maybe that's preferable than being separated from God. But what we're really waiting for is the resurrection from the dead and our judgment so that we can receive the immortal body and be more fully clothed. So I think Paul, if, if you understand this from a biblical Hebraic perspective, he's being very clear. But it's easy to get confused if you bring ideas and thoughts that are not part of his worldview and, and force him to be saying that. That's when things get confusing. But I think Paul is pretty consistent here with the kinds of things we've been talking about. So my guess is that when our loved ones die, if they were in the Lord, they go to a place that's more like a dream-like state, more like a spiritual kind of state that's pleasant for them, that is where the other righteous folks who have died in all the eons and centuries are also waiting for their resurrection and their judgment, and they wait peacefully and consciously, but consciously maybe like a dream. That would be my guess. And then the wicked also go to the same basic reality, but aware of their judgment and their separation from Christ, and so their waiting for judgment is torturous, described in the scriptures the way hell is described, as a place of fire. And um, I think that that's a good metaphor for what it must be like to await resurrection and judgment, knowing fully how that will go for you. So I expect that that's where the dead go to wait. But the testimony of the scriptures is that that's not their final resting place, that that is simply a waiting area. Jesus calls it paradise for the righteous, Gehenna, hell for the wicked. But we expect that all of these will be bodily resurrected, that they will face judgment for what was done in the flesh, and that the righteous who have faith in Jesus 
will go on then to a new physical creation, but a creation made out of spirit instead of material things, but still a physical creation called the new heavens and the new earth where God will dwell with us. And the wicked will go, as Revelation says, where Satan and his angels were cast into the lake of burning sulfur, which is called the second death. And that's about all the information we have about it in the scriptures. So that's my best guess.